how might we better prepare for disasters? What role did deadly design play in Hurricane Katrina? How does the concept of triage during a crisis reflect our values? I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab, and to show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? I am so excited about today's guest. She is Sherry Fink, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Emmy nominated television producer, and the author of the New York Times best-selling nonfiction book, Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital about the choices made in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. She is a producer of the Five Days at Memorial limited series on Apple TV+. It is a fantastic series. I loved watching it. You're going to love watching it too. Sherry Fink has explored the impact of crises on healthcare, and she is informed by her background as a physician and former relief worker in disaster and conflict zones. She also holds a PhD in neuroscience. As a warning to our listeners, there are some spoilers for the TV series Five Days at Memorial. So if you're the type of person that doesn't want to hear anything about the show, Watch it first before listening to this interview, but we don't reveal too much, so I think you could get by either way. We appreciate everyone who supports the show. You can do this in three ways. One, go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a review. Go to the show notes and sign up for the newsletter and tell someone about the podcast. Go on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, tell someone about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Sherry Fink. Sherry Fink, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to join you. Thank you. Every time I go to work in the emergency room, I triage patients, and it's the sickest patients come back first. You know, these are the ones who are having chest pain that might be indicative of them having a heart attack or of course if someone gets shot and in your book and the tv series that is based upon your book five days at memorial triage happens but it happens in a different type of way can you talk about that absolutely i would actually argue that there isn't one way that we do triage so we could start with that premise but just to give people a little background the scenario we have and what we're triaging, what we're talking about triaging early on, a, a spot on a rescue helicopter when a hospital is in difficult straits after a hurricane. So that is really the first dilemma. And it's not a typical triage for those listeners who work in emergency rooms or hospitals or anybody who's been a patient. Yeah, it's acute care. We can also think about if there's a bus accident, you know, like who would the ambulances and the ambulance personnel focus on first, the first responders. So there's that kind of triage. But what we don't learn as much about in med school, I'm speaking for myself, but I think I would guess it was true in your med school too, is this kind of in-hospital triage. I'll amend that because now with COVID, mm -hmm. this is a much more familiar scenario when hospital resources are overwhelmed. And you have to think about, you know, who gets into the ICU. So in this case, the hospital personnel who were in this hospital that was surrounded by floodwaters, about to lose 
all power, just working on backup power. They got together doctors, some nurses, hospital administrators, and made this decision about who would be rescued first. And when I interviewed them, they told me they didn't think it was going to be terribly momentous because at that time they just figured, oh, this is America. There's many resources and everybody will get rescued. So we'll just, you know, make this choice about who we who we rescue first, but it won't end up having many consequences. And as as you view the series, you see that that does lead to some consequences. And like you might imagine, I think in this case, they kind of got together and made this choice. And I want everybody to kind of like, who's listening to think about who would you rescue Mm -hmm. first if you had that scenario and you were, you know, we all become first responders in an emergency. And we could talk about the various ways that you could think about that from a medical perspective or an ethical perspective. In this case, they really made the decision ad hoc. And Mm -hmm. so they thought about who needs the resources and the resource that was about to be lost was power. Mm -hmm. So they did get the ICU patients out, the neonatal ICU patients out for anybody who might be rooting for younger patients, because you can think about, well, should age go into that? But like you said, Bon, they also made a kind of a unusual decision, which is that they put a set of patients to go last. And it was described to me as the patients who had do not resuscitate orders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, anybody who didn't want their, you know, heart to be restarted if it stopped. And also some of the sicker patients in the hospital. And I asked the doctors why that was. And one of them told me, well, I figured somebody with a DNR had the least to lose compared with everybody else. So it's really quite a value judgment, right? Not just a a medical one. And another said, you know, I felt like if they didn't want extraordinary measures to extend their life, then in this case, the helicopter becomes an extraordinary measure. Mm. There were patients who were on ventilators at that time because the hospital had an ICU, correct? And what happened to those patients? So what's interesting is that they did have an ICU, but that ICU, like this was a community hospital. So there weren't that many ventilator dependent patients in their ICU, Mm -hmm. but the building had a long-term acute care unit, LTAC, that was leased seventh floor of the building was like leased out to this LTAC company, totally separate corporation. And that's where a lot of the patients who had, you know, multiple medical issues dependent on a lot of care. And many of them were sort of long-term ventilator dependent patients. Mm. And what was shocking about this, and you'll see it in the series in a rather dramatic way, was that they weren't really being considered by the main hospital, which controlled the helipad where the helicopters were starting to land. So they didn't even really think about this other corporation's patients Mm -hmm. in the initial triage. And that led to a lot of consequences later in the disaster. What happened when the hospital had lost power to those patients that were on ventilators? So what happened when the actual power did fail was that the patients who were on ventilators, there was a a small amount of backup time on the batteries in on those devices. And so there was an attempt to get those patients down 
the stairs because mm-hmm. obviously the elevators weren't working and then get them up to this old unused since Pope John Paul had visited New Orleans helipad and try to get them on any helicopters that might be landing at that time. And in real life, that actually occurred kind of like in the wee hours of the morning. And there was just this very desperate scramble to get these patients out. And mm. in real life, what happened about half of them did get out and half of them passed away in that mm. initial power outage. Mm the ones who were ventilator dependent and there was hand bagging. So of course, like the helicopters weren't all there at that moment. And so the staff were trying to bag the patients. And for those of you, I know you have a lot of medical listeners, but that is, gets very, very difficult to do for a very long period of time. And so they were kind of switching off and trying to keep the patients alive as long as they could. So they, they had to use a thing called like a manual resuscitator, which is literally just a bag that you compress with your hands in order to give breath to the patient. And literally the life of the patient is dependent upon you squeezing this bag. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. An ambu bag. I wanted to talk about deadly design and how did the design of Memorial Hospital itself may have contributed to patient deaths? I'm specifically thinking about the electrical system. Yeah, this is so important. I'm so glad this is like the theme of our discussion because it takes this story from an individual story of a tragedy to something that is much more important national discussion and priority, I would argue, for our country, really around the world, actually. Mm. And that is that a lot of our medical infrastructure has vulnerabilities. And these are vulnerabilities to like really common hazards, Mm -hmm. such as floods or winter storms. There are many, many reasons why power might be lost in a hospital. And we are in a state now where, at least in this country, there's so much dependence on technology in our advanced medical systems and hospitals that literally, you know, like staff, I remember learning in med school, the old school skills are still important. And, you know, we learned how to percuss and how to, how to use our hands and our ears, but it more and more, there's so much dependence on technology and medicine. And that can mean that when we lose things like power, that the staff can feel very disempowered to actually keep caring for patients. It's the worst yeah. thing that happens when there's a powder out- outage and like the computers are off. That's mm-hmm. like, I don't, it's like, I don't even know how to function without computers being on. Yeah. And everyone can relate to this too, right? It's not just a hospital, but that's where it could be life and death. But you know, how many of us can navigate the city when our cell phones are out of juice? So you know, and just multiply that by a million in a hospital. Mm. But this happens with some regularity. And so this is an issue in design and there are solutions. There are much more resilient design methodologies that can even be cost-effective in terms of day-to-day operation of a hospital. I'm not an expert in this field. You probably know more than I do. But when you think about what's going to make you more resilient in a disaster, 
often it is things that can help you in every day. Like these mm-hmm. sort of dual use interventions are going to be the the best ones because they make sense even if you don't get hit by that somewhat unlikely but very foreseeable catastrophe. And in, in the Memorial Hospital, it was the electrical system components that were connected to backup power system. Those were below sea level. And so when it flooded, the backup system wasn't able to run. Is that correct? And then that means there was no air conditioning and the elevators that were going to the helicopter pad cannot be run because they were connected to that backup electrical system, which was underwater. Yeah. I mean, it's even sort of more outrageous when you step back a a moment because there are two aspects to this. One is that even the backup power system, which hospitals are required to have, and more and more nursing homes as well, as we get more of these flooding and power outage events and hurricanes. So they're required to have a backup power system, but amazingly, it doesn't have to power the HVAC system, meaning heating, air conditioning, and ventilation. Wait, that's not a requirement? As far as I know, no. And in fact, if you go to your local hospital, you might want to ask, does your backup power system keep these components running? It certainly didn't in New Orleans at this hospital. And as I understand it, many hospitals do not have that capacity. Mm. So for example, Hurricane Sandy here in the Northeast, as you recall, that was in I want to say October, if I remember correctly, a late season storm, and it was freezing cold. And so when the power went out and the hospitals that were able to keep backup power going, they didn't like have heating. In this case, in New Orleans, it was super hot. It was August in the South, and it became extremely hot in these hospitals, even when the backup power system was still going. Hmm. And so that was the first thing was like, okay, the storm comes through. It's a really bad storm, but they weather it okay, but they're on backup power and the hospital starts getting super hot. And then a day or so later, you know, people notice that this terrible flooding is beginning as the levee system was collapsing. And like you said, electrical circuits are circuits. (laughs) So they had thought to move the backup generators to a higher floor. Mm -hmm. New Orleans, of course, is a city in a bowl below sea level. So the generators were on the second floor, which was great, but components of the system were still in the basement. And so my understanding from, well, all the lawsuits, (laughs) there was a lot of information that came out later, but the design of this thing was that when the water got to a certain level and flooded the basement, that the generators couldn't keep going because of these other circuits that were flooded and and knocked out. And what's really astonishing too, is it wasn't just this one hospital that's featured in the series. It was just about all of the hospitals in New Orleans lost their backup power when there was flooding. Unbelievable. I mean, that's something that could have easily been prevented if the building was designed better. It's not only that, there was actually money after some earlier storm that was offered by the federal government to support retrofits. And as you know, those can be more expensive than just starting with a good design. And I found in my research for the book, Five Days at Memorial, 
that the city health commissioner had reached out. I actually got a copy of this letter. I can't remember how long in advance. It may have only been a year or so before Katrina to all of the hospitals. It said, we've got some money that we can access. How many of you of your hospitals have backup power systems that could be vulnerable to a flood disaster, a flood event? And would you guys like some money to try to, you know, make some retrofits? And my understanding was like, nobody took him up on it. But so they were all aware of this vulnerability. It's quite shocking. And it, it just points to this, you know, real gap we have in acting on these infrastructure vulnerabilities that we have in this country. I think it's, it's almost this like human, you know, like desire to look away from, it's not even a worst case scenario. It's like almost like a semi likely one that yeah. this will happen every year there will be coastal storms so you know i'm hoping that the series the five days at memorial series on apple tv plus that, that as people watch that and become invested in you know the outrageous conditions that these providers and patients were left in that will want to sort of support as a society some of these very doable interventions to make our infrastructure safer yeah yeah i hope the series makes us less likely to forget. And that's what I'm worried about with our current pandemic, which has exposed the fractures of our system. And I'm afraid that we're going to forget and go back to business as usual. And then when the next pandemic hits, that I'm, I'm afraid that we're not going to learn from the lessons that the hard lessons that we had to learn dur during this pandemic. There were times during the series where I was literally yelling at my TV. It was like, I'm a big Eagles fan. And so when they're losing, which is not happening this year, but in the past years, yes. And I start just like raging. And it was those scenes from the corporate offices of tenant healthcare. Can you talk about the role that what is tenant healthcare and what role it played in Memorial Hospital during Katrina? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I just want to acknowledge your your brave work during the pandemic and how much, how heartfelt that must be where you really don't want us to forget these lessons and all of our, all of the people who worked in hospitals during this period, I know will be with you on that. So thank you yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for doing that work. So Tenet, as you know, in many parts of the country, hospitals are often for-profit entities, and there has been a consolidation over the years. So there's some big corporations that may own many hospitals and different types of health facilities and, you know, on a regional or national basis. Interestingly, we could have a whole discussion about whether that makes you more resilient in an emergency because you mm. have more resources to draw on if you yeah. have. And I've seen it work that way. And so in this case, this hospital that we're talking about, Memorial, was owned by Tenet Healthcare, which was based in Texas. And that corporation was getting frantic emails. And this is true in real life and in the series. In fact, some of when you watch the series and you see the emails being typed out very often, those are almost word for word, the words that went back and forth between the hospital staff and yeah. the corporate there's one email that, and I'm going to read it from your book. I think it's the same as in the series. Are you telling us we are on our own and you cannot help? And that yes. was sent to corporate headquarters from someone at Memorial Hospital. 
Exactly. I think actually that's the one in the series where he writes back, no, I'll help you. But in real life, <laughs> I don't think that's what actually was written back. I can't remember exactly. And and that points to something in the series. I mean, everybody is really portrayed very empathetically. So it's not a case of like, you know, good patient, bad doctor or bad corporation, good because it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, but uh-huh. but what is true about this corporate parent company is that they were not prepared to support their hospitals in the region that were in this situation. You know, there were people who were trying their best in this case in, in the series. You see this guy, I think his title is like regional business manager, something yeah, like that, uh-huh. which is true in real life that that was his title. And he's he is fielding these like increasingly desperate emails asking for help evacuating the hospital as the waters are rising. And at that time, they didn't have a plan to support their Gulf Coast hospitals in this kind of scenario. You know, for those days before the power went out and they couldn't email anymore, they were just kind of saying, you know, like the Coast Guard or the National Guard or these public institutions are going to rescue you. And it took a while before it dawned on them that it would be really helpful if they hired some helicopters and got them into the airspace, which they ultimately did, but there was quite a time lag. Mm -hmm. And there was like this tension of at one point, right, where there were other hospitals that were willing to receive patients, but they cannot provide the helicopter transport for Memorial Hospital? I mean, reading it in retrospect is just so painful because you see these sister and brother hospitals around the region who are getting copied on these emails being sent by the hospital officials at Memorial. And they're saying, you know, we can take patients. I think there was one that even had a helicopter fleet yeah. in Atlanta, I want to say, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Yeah. You've read the book more yeah, recently. It was, yeah, it's in Atlanta. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. And at that point, you know, the corporate parent was... it almost sounds like an annoyed email back I'm projecting here, but you can read the actual emails. And he's just sort of like, no, 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 we can't just send a helicopter in. This was early on. And so they kind of had all of these, you know, sister and brother hospitals stand down and just said like the, you know, these public institutions are going to help. But I guess this does point to something larger. And we saw it in COVID too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for all of us. And I used to work in kind of conflict and disaster emergency response myself earlier in my career. And I've seen it over and over, which is that really when you have a big disaster or an emergency situation, that kind of self-help or initiative, creative, and sometimes you know, through preparedness, you get this too, the ability to help yourself or help your neighbors. That is really what can save lives and make a difference in an acute emergency. Mm. The more self-sufficient, the more, you know, helping those around you that you can be, the more prepared to do that, the better, because the official first responders are going to be outmatched Mm. and there were rescues going on, but they had a whole city to focus on. And yeah. so do you send that helicopter to rescue someone off of a rooftop who might not have water, 
who, you know, the waters are rising, who could drown? Or do you send them to a hospital where, you know, at least there's a stock of medications, there are, you know, trained medical providers. And so you you could see why maybe it was a slow rescue of that hospital by the official first responders because yeah. they had, you know, many, many life and death priorities. Yeah. I mean, maybe a lesson to be learned is there's no drawback to being over-prepared and being self-sufficient. <laughs> except money, except yeah. that's what holds us back, I think, right? Do you put your money into that kind of preparedness or your yeah. efforts? And the series really shows what happens when you don't. Yeah. Buckminster Fuller is a famous designer. And he said, the best way to predict the future is to design it. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we can better design our systems for future disasters. Because as you said, disasters are inevitable. They're unpredictable, but we know that they're going to come to us, whether it's a pandemic, a hurricane, or a tsunami. Design is so key. And it's design in the classic sense of like physical design, infrastructure design, but also even just how the system works. I remember after a recent bad hurricane in Houston a few years back, I went back and spent almost a year tracing some of the the deaths of people who were, the city was like flooded and there were many people who had a little bit of water in their basements who were calling 911. But then there were also people having emergencies calling 911. And I looked at how the system, which was purportedly, you know, like, everybody's goal was go rescue the people who are either having life-threatening flooding or mm-hmm. are in an emergency and need to get to a hospital. But when I looked back, the system wasn't actually designed to have that outcome. And so mm-hmm. it's exactly as you or Buckminster Fuller said, yeah. like the system was designed for the outcome that they got, which mm-hmm. was sadly that quite a few people died who, you know, if the system had been designed to actually prioritize the people who needed the most help could have been saved. And so this is an extremely important concept. And I just think that there's so much to do on this level on the space of, in terms of like physical design, we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of, well, I think it was called Superstorm Sandy by the yeah. time it hit New York. And there were many, many proposals because the healthcare institutions and the nursing homes were often coastal in New York. We, uh-huh. we forget this. They took a huge hit and there were you know massive evacuations needed. A lot of patients put at risk, separated from families, like a huge, huge cost in terms of lives and suffering. And maybe we've forgotten, but there were a lot of efforts to look at designing better systems and I've noticed that there are a few like workshops coming up to look at what the legacy is 10 years later, but I would suspect that a lot of what was proposed has not been actually implemented. And that's, that's really sad if that's mm. true. Because so, some of these hospitals, I think, had the same vulnerabilities, right? With the backup systems being prone to failing from flooding, right? Exactly the same. And this was seven years after Katrina when Superstorm Sandy hit. And I was a New York resident, kind of like it was very, very depressing to think after having seen the huge loss of life of people in medical institutions and nursing homes 
you know, in New Orleans and in that region after Katrina and so many promises of reforms after that, the need for reform, because like you said, these are systemic design issues, not just localized ones, that those types of, you know, retrofits had not happened to a great extent in the Northeast. And Mm -hmm. it will be, I think it's really important to look at what, after many, many expert groups came together, many reports were written, many governmental you know, initiatives were proposed, what actually did get done in these last 10 years? Are we any better protected after all of the promises and all of the, you know, realizations of our vulnerabilities? What have we actually done and what do we need to do? Let's get back on track with that. It's like we have disaster amnesia. Like after, after it happens, we go, okay, back to normal. Then we're like, oh, we got to do something again when the next disaster comes. And what inspires you for doing this work of storytelling? Because I think it's so powerful and we underestimate the power of storytelling, both in medicine and, and public health, because you could just read a report that you know there were 45 deaths at a hospital during Hurricane Katrina, but that may not inspire us to action. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure anymore that stories do either. <laughs> I mean, I think there's two things that keep me going doing this kind of work. One is that it at least bears witness to the needless, avertable deaths and suffering. Mm-hmm. And maybe we owe that to the people who who paid with their lives. And I'm thinking broadly here, not just at Memorial, but yeah. we can think about that with COVID for sure. We need to think about how many people we lost and and why and, you know, bear witness to that. So that's one thing, just the value in and of itself to doing that and to facing that. And in terms of change, I think, you know, sometimes it's not on the kind of grand level that we might hope for, but it can make a difference. I think preparedness and response is very localized. Mm. And what I do know for sure is that the book Five Days at Memorial and hopefully the TV series Five Days at Memorial has inspired changes on local levels. So yeah. I know of hospitals where, you know, the CEO read the book and, you know, made some investments in in preparedness or started to prioritize it. Because I should say also design is one thing, but then you also need to keep that muscle memory going and you yeah. need to use that. I'm, I'm thinking of this famous story from Tropical Storm Allison in Houston, which was a few years before Katrina hit New Orleans. And mm-hmm. This is a famous story. The Texas Medical Center is all like all these famous, famous hospitals in Houston are in one area of town because somebody donated, you know, the land. And so everybody could build their hospitals there. And there's a series of underground tunnels. And so somebody had smartly designed a system of flood doors underground. Mm. And my understanding is that when the storm hit, they had been out of use for so many years that it was forgotten that they existed. And so there was a level of flooding and power outages in these hospitals requiring, you know, massive dangerous evacuations of patients that could have been avoided if they had been exercising that regularly and remember that they had that protection system. So we need to remember that design needs to also go with, you know, like frequent training and use of those structures that we have. 
I love how five days of memorial may have like inspired some leaders to get more prepared. And I, I really feel that anyone that has decision-making power should definitely watch a series. One, everyone should watch it because it's just fascinating and gripping, but especially those who have the power to make decisions because what you're saying about preparedness and response being very local, I 100% felt that during the pandemic where at my particular hospital that I worked in, that we were very prepared for the pandemic in terms of our PPE, where I had an N95 throughout the entire pandemic. And I was like hearing these reports and hearing from colleagues at other systems and other cities where they didn't have N95s. And I thought that was like, why not? That's so weird. Aren't all hospitals preparing like this? We had a warehouse full of PPE that we were storing for, I think, over a decade. And then I was like, yeah, I was just shocked that some of my other colleagues working in other emergency rooms or other ICUs did not have N95s. And it's so important to be self-sufficient. It's so important to prepare. It's super localized. And, and I know you've done reporting on COVID and I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we can be better prepared for the next pandemic if it were to happen. Oh, there's so, so many ways we could be. <laughs> Take your pick. Well, first of all, I just want to feedback on stockpiling like that, which is, I mean, I'm so relieved that as you're doing your important job and supporting the community's health, that you had tools to keep yourself safe. That's fantastic. And when you stockpile, though, those items do have expiration dates. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine worked in an ER and I remember he sent a video around or as he tried to put on the N95 and the the old elastic <laughs> kept snapping. Yeah. So you need to rotate stockpiles. That's one concept is, you know, rotate those products into your usual, you know, when, when these are items that you use from time to time to use them. And this goes for people who have their disaster bunkers. <laughs> you want to yeah. eat some of that food and replace <laughs> it every once in a while. <laughs> And I would say, again, you know, for people who aren't, yes, it's very important if you are in a decision-making capacity in a hospital, this will, you know, the five days at Memorial will speak to you in one way. But I feel like the value of focusing in on individual decisions and individual stories is to point out that no matter who you are in a disaster, if a disaster comes to your community or a pandemic, all of us kind of underestimate the importance of of our personal preparedness to be able mm. to function in that type of a scenario. So we we all can look at ways in which we personally can be more prepared. You know, mm. like one thing, many, many examples, but you can take a, a stop the bleed class. And then if you encounter somebody who's been in a car accident, or if there's a, unfortunately, which happens a shooting, you know, you can save somebody's life. So it can be as simple as having an extra set of medicine if a hurricane is coming to your area so that you don't end up needing something or being in a life-threatening situation and putting strain on the system. Like you're doing your part to make your community more resilient. And part of telling these stories is to sort of like, it's one way of doing a drill, right? You're walking yeah. through a disaster scenario almost moment by moment. And you get insights by doing that, which you you wouldn't have if you didn't think through it in that sort of 
chronological way. There's always going to be surprises. And one of the tenets of preparedness is to be prepared for things to be not exactly as you envisioned they would be. So you have to be prepared and be flexible. So when it comes to pandemic preparedness, I have that same fear that you do that the next infectious disease outbreak, we will be similarly vulnerable. So I think that, you know, it's just very, very important to learn the lessons for whichever industry you happen to be in and to keep those investments up and not just, I mean, we're not even through this one. That That's kind of the, <laughs> the irony of talking about it <laughs> for the future because we're pretending this one's over. But But we have to start now. We have to start now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. I just want to end on a final note of I love some of the the characters in Five Days at Memorial. The there's some of them were so inspiring. Maybe you could not tell us about your favorite character because <laughs> I think that's hard to do, but a character that you would like to highlight for the viewers. Oh my gosh, because I know these people in real life. So, well, they're characters on the screen. They're yeah. based on real people in many cases. And I just got to know and admire so many people from this. So, I don't know. We'll just talk about Dr. Baltz. He gets viewers, we'll see, and I won't spoil it, but he does get kind of the last word in the series. And he's one of those old-time doctors who, when I would go to interview him, he had the classic doctor's office that you might see in the, you know, the, what are those paintings? Who's the famous painter who did the doctor's offices? Oh, uh, Norman Rockwell. Well, yeah. He's yeah, like yeah. a Norman, <laughs> Norman Rockwell painting. He's and a caricature guy, of, of a Norman totally, Rockwell doctor. I mean, <laughs> older man, but he was still running, you know, his blood's like in the back of his office by himself. He would, you know, like, do his own lab That's test. crazy. <laughs> and he was kind of like the moral center of this hospital in real life. And he, he plays that role in the book without being sanctimonious, I would argue. Like just he was actually a really fun guy in real life. Like he mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't like a boring, you can be deeply ethical and also be a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah, so he, I think sometimes people have trouble looking you know, there's a whole part of the story that we didn't talk about and the reason why it made national news, which is that a doctor and two nurses were arrested and accused of murder by the Louisiana attorney general after the events mm-hmm. that took place in this hospital after Katrina. And it's like really shocking to say that, but they always maintained their innocence. But the series and the book look a lot at that. And one of the things that we might feel is that we don't want to look back and just assume that we know what we would have done in the similar situation. And while that is absolutely true, I think it's also really important to note that not everybody who was functioning in the same scenario agreed that the decisions that were made were the right ones. In other words, there was dissent. It certainly was not everybody who thought that these very controversial actions that were taken were the right ones. And Mm -hmm. there were individuals, doctors, nurses who felt very differently about what happened than people at the center of the events. And so I just, I really enjoyed getting to know him. And as people who know more about the series, there's been a lot written, but there were 
there was an early possibility that it was going to be a movie. And so Dr. Baltz, every time there was some news about a potential dramatic, you know, adaptation of the book, he would leave me these delighted voicemail messages. So that there was nobody who was more excited to see it translated to the screen because he knew it would reach a whole different set of people. And unfortunately, he he died recently. So he he never got to see it. And so I guess I'll I'll dedicate my this podcast to uh, his spirit and uh, beautifully captured and adapted by Robert Pine, a wonderful actor, Chris Pine's father for Hollywood geeks who played him in the series. Cool. That's a great way to end. Um, I encourage everyone listening to right afterward, right after you listen to this podcast, go to Apple TV. All episodes are out. You will be gripped. Leave yourself some time because I was only going to watch one episode, then it's like two o'clock in the morning. I had to watch like four in a row. It's, <laughs> it's a gripping series. Thank you so much, Sherry, for being on the show. I know you have a super busy schedule. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Bon. And just to clarify, it's Apple TV Plus, and not everybody knows about it because it, it is one of the newer streaming services. Also, other great shows on there too. And you can watch it on any device. Like you don't have to have an Apple device. You can even just go to the web and sign up and get a free trial and subscribe. It's $4.99 a month. I know these things now. Yeah. Of the series. yeah, I have a subscription. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's how how people can can find it just yeah so thank you thank you so much thanks for what you do thank you you can follow sherry fink on twitter at s-h-e-r-i-f-i-n-k and go to apple tv plus and watch the series five days at memorial reach out to me on twitter at b-o-n-k-u on instagram at d-r-b-o-n-k-u Design Lab is produced by Rob Pugliese, editing by Fernando Cayeros, and our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.